Chapter 8 Energy How do you make sure your brain is as healthy and energized as it can be? What should I make sure to have in my diet if I want my brain to be at its strongest? How do I consistently get a good night's sleep? You have a clear purpose for learning or doing something, and you've broken down the project or goal into small, simple steps. Does that guarantee sustainable, limitless motivation? For example, even if you have a reason to read daily and have a plan to read for just five minutes a day, what can keep you from doing so is fatigue. Mental and physical vitality is the fuel needed to drive your actions. We know the importance of time management. Well, motivation is all about energy management and optimization. You can't be motivated if you do not generate energy. My friend Brendan Burchard says the power plant doesn't have energy. It generates energy. Here are my 10 recommendations for generating limitless brain energy. For each tip, please rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how much attention you are putting into that specific area. You may be surprised by your answers. Number one, a good Brain diet. Resiliency expert Dr. Eva Selhub often likens the brain to a high performance vehicle. Like an expensive car, she writes, your brain functions best when it gets only premium fuel. Eating high quality foods that contain lots of vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants nourishes the brain and protects it. From oxidative stress. The waste free radicals produced when the body uses oxygen, which can damage cells. She goes on to note that when your brain is forced to run on inferior fuel, it can't possibly do everything it was built to do. Refined sugar, for example, contributes to impaired brain function, leads to inflammation, and can even cause depression. Something you might want to consider the next time you reach for a tub of ice cream to contend with a tough day. In my podcast interviews with Dr. Lisa Mosconi, a neuroscientist, integrative nutritionist, and author of Brain Food and the XX Brain, she explains why the dietary needs of the brain are different from those of other organs. The human brain requires 45 distinct nutrients to function best. While most of these nutrients are created by the brain itself, the rest are imported from our diet. Since we know for sure there's a direct connection between a good diet and a healthy brain, it's essential that you feed your brain with the best food nature has to offer. Here is a list of my top 10 favorite brain foods. Avocados. They provide monosaturated fat, which helps to maintain healthy blood flow. Blueberries. I call them brain berries. 
They protect your brain from oxidative stress and reduce the effects of brain aging. There have also been studies that show they can help with memory. Broccoli, a great source of vitamin K, which is known to improve cognitive function and memory. Eggs, they provide memory improving and brain boosting choline. Green leafy vegetables, these are good sources of vitamin E, which reduces the effects of brain aging, and folate, which has been shown to improve memory. Wild salmon, sardines, caviar. They're rich in omega-3 essential fatty acids, which help reduce the effects of brain aging. Turmeric. It helps reduce inflammation and boost antioxidant levels while also improving your brain's oxygen intake. There's also some indication that turmeric helps to reduce cognitive decay. Walnuts, they provide high levels of antioxidants and vitamin E that protect your neurons and protect against brain aging. They also contain high levels of zinc and magnesium, which are really good for your mood. Notice walnuts look like a human brain. Dark chocolate. It helps with your focus and your concentration and stimulates endorphins. Chocolate also has flavonoids, which has been shown to improve cognitive function. The darker here, the better, as the darkest chocolate has the least sugar, and we've already talked about how sugar is something to eat sparingly. And finally, water. Your brain is about 80% water. Dehydration can cause brain fog, fatigue, and slower reaction and thinking speed. Studies show that well-hydrated people score better on brain power tests. For a quick video on how to memorize this list, forwards and backwards, go to limitlessbook.com forward slash resources. If you're the kind of person who hates hearing you need to eat your vegetables, employing this list might require a bit of an adjustment. But here's some good news, because there's evidence to show that your brain runs very well with a little bit of dark chocolate in the mix. Remember, what you eat matters, especially for your gray matter. Quick start. What are your favorite brain foods? How can you incorporate one more into your daily diet? I met Mona Sharma when she was featured on Facebook's Red Table Talk as the nutritionist for Will Smith and his family, alongside Dr. Mark Hyman. She shared with me how the foods we eat can have a big impact on our energy, the quality of our health, and the function of our brains. Focusing on key ingredients like good quality omega-3 rich fats, vegetables loaded with antioxidants and phytonutrients, and spices to enhance our digestion and focus, and can support both short and long-term brain function. 
In the PDF in the resources, you will find a sample day of some of her go-to recipes to optimize brain power and vitality. These include morning brain tonic, morning magic smoothie, brain boost salad, easy roasted salmon and broccoli with Swiss chard, cocoa cinnamon ginger hot chocolate. Number two, brain nutrients. As we've discussed, diet affects brain function. But what if you aren't able, because of your schedule or lifestyle, to regularly eat a rich brain food diet? Research has shown that particular nutrients have a direct effect on your cognitive ability. I always prefer getting my nutrients from real, whole, organic foods. Talk to your qualified health practitioner to learn what you might be deficient in. In my podcast episode with Max Lugavere, author of Genius Foods, we discussed the benefits of supplementing with phospholipid DHA. Your brain uses this to create healthy cell membranes. This is important because our cell membranes form all the receptors involved in mood, executive functioning, attention, and memory. B vitamins have been shown to improve women's memories. Curcumin, the nutrient found in turmeric, can forestall cognitive decay. You can get a list of nutrients and their effect on the brain from the National Institutes of Health website. There are natural sources for all these nutrients, but getting all of them into your diet might not fit your lifestyle or your palate. The good news is that supplements are readily available for all of these, though not all supplements are created equal. Make sure to do your research. You can also combine these with the brain foods discussed in this chapter to give your brain the fuel it needs. For a list and links to some of my favorite brain supplements, go to limitlessbook.com forward slash resources. Number three, exercise. Exercise changes the brain in ways that protect memory and thinking skills writes Heidi Godman, the executive editor of the Harvard Health Letter. In a study done at the University of British Columbia, researchers found that regular aerobic exercise, the kind that gets your heart and your sweat glands pumping, appears to boost the size of the hippocampus, the brain area involved in verbal memory and learning. I could almost hear some of you complaining or making excuses as you listen to this last paragraph. Exercise is boring. You don't have time for it. You can't afford a gym membership. But the simple fact is that exercise is enormously valuable if you want to unshackle your brain. Think about it. When you're active and moving, you feel sharper, right? Some of us 
even need to move around in order to get our brains operating at top efficiency. That's because there's a direct correlation between exercise and brain function. And you don't need to become an Olympic athlete in order to keep your brain sharp. There's lots of evidence to show that even 10 minutes of aerobic exercise a day can have enormous brain benefits. As your body moves, your brain grooves. Check out a few of my favorite exercise videos at limitlessbook.com forward slash resources. Quick start. Set your phone alarm to remind yourself to move a few minutes every hour. Number four, killing ants. Dr. Daniel Amen, a clinical neuroscientist, author of the bestseller, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, and a frequent guest of ours, comes home one night after a particularly bad day at the office dealing with suicide risks, angst-ridden teens and dysfunctional couples to find thousands of ants in his kitchen. It was gross, he wrote. As I started to clean them up, the acronym came to me. I thought of my patients from that day. Like my infested kitchen, my patients' brains were also infested by the negative thoughts that were robbing them of their joy and stealing their happiness. The next day, I brought a can of ant spray to work as a visual aid and have been working diligently ever since to help my patients eradicate their ants. Ants are automatic negative thoughts. And if you're like most people, you place limitations on yourself in the form of these thoughts at least some of the time. Maybe you tell yourself that you aren't smart enough to learn a skill that you'd really like to have, or perhaps you repeat on an endless loop how pushing yourself to accomplish something is only going to lead to disappointment. Ants are everywhere, and there isn't enough ant spray in the world to get rid of all of them. But eliminating them from your life is an essential part of unlimiting your brain. The reason for this is simple. If you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them. If you regularly tell yourself that you can't do something, or that you're too old to do something, or that you don't have the smarts to do something, you won't do that thing. Only when you move on from this kind of destructive self-talk can you truly accomplish what you want to accomplish. Quick start. What's your biggest ant? What could you replace it with now? Number five, a clean environment. A 2018 piece in the medical journal The Lancet identified that air pollution might cause 30% of all strokes and thus must be one of the leading contributors of the global stroke burden. It went on, given the strong association between stroke, vascular risk factors, and dementia, the suggested link between air pollution and dementia 
is to be expected. The air you breathe is critical to the way your brain functions. If you've ever been stuck in a room with a smoker, you know how hard it is to even think while you're breathing that toxic air. Conversely, if you're hiking in the mountains and take a deep breath from the crisp, clean atmosphere, you can feel your senses thriving. If you live in a factory town or a big city with pollutants everywhere, there isn't a lot you could do about the air around you. Fortunately, there are devices available to clean the air in your home and in your office, and you can make an increased effort to get to cleaner spaces more frequently. A clean environment goes beyond air quality. Removing clutter and distractions from your surrounding will also make you feel lighter and improve your ability to focus. So take time to Marie Kondo your mind and remove any unnecessary stuff. Quick start. What is the one thing you could do today to clean your environment? Number six, a positive peer group. Your brain potential is not just related to your biological networks or your neurological networks. It is also related to your social networks. Who you spend time with is who you become. Motivational speaker Jim Rohn says that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Whether you believe that or not, I don't think any of us can disagree with the notion that the people around us have a meaningful influence on our lives. A recent Temple University study showed that people, specifically teenagers in this study, act differently when they are alone than they do when they are with others. In reporting on the study for the New York Times, Tara Parker Pope said that Dr. Steinberg, one of the authors of the study, notes that the brain system involved in the reward processing is also involved in the processing of social information, explaining why peers can have such a pronounced effect on decision-making. Because of this influence, those you spend time with will have a genuine effect on brain function. Certainly, they affect your self-talk, as most of us tie at least part of our beliefs to the beliefs others have about us. But they can also affect everything from what you eat, to how much you exercise, to even how much sleep you get. There are a lot of books out there dedicated to helping you to distinguish people who are good for you from people who are not. But for the purposes of this chapter, just take a few minutes to think about who your peers are, how much influence they have on your life, and how this affects your desire to unlimit yourself. Quick start. Who is someone you need to spend more time with? Reach out and make a date with that person now. Number seven, brain protection. This probably goes without saying, but protecting your brain is critical if you're going to make the most of your brain. You have only one brain. If you are given only one car to use for the rest of your life, how well would you treat that car? You would take care of it 
as if your life depended on it. Accidents are unavoidable, but putting yourself in situations where brain injury is less likely improves your chances of avoiding the worst. Hard contact or extreme sports may not be the ideal if you want to make the most of this precious asset. Driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit all the time on your motorcycle isn't advisable either. If you love these things too much to give up, at the very least, take as many precautions and use as many safety tools as you can. Number 8. New Learnings One of the most important things you can do for the health of your brain is to keep learning. We are all capable of expanding the capacities of our brains, even as we get older, which we discussed when we talked about neuroplasticity in Chapter 3. What this means is that as long as we keep learning, we continue to create new pathways in our brains. We keep our brains plastic and supple, capable of processing new information in relevant ways. This is especially true if we give ourselves genuine challenges in our learning. Attempting to master a new skill, to discover a new language, to embrace parts of our culture or cultures of others that are new to you, all keep these neurons firing and creating new pathways. By increasing the ways you use your brain, you increase the capabilities of your brain. Quick start. Create an ongoing to-learn list. What are some things on that list? Write two of them down in your notepad. Number nine, stress management. This is a big one. We all experience some level of stress in our everyday lives, sometimes a great deal of stress. Whenever we experience stress, a hormone known as cortisol is released to alleviate the physical rigors of stress on our bodies. If this happens occasionally, it's not a problem. But if it happens with great regularity, the buildup of cortisol in our brains can lead it to cease functioning properly. But there's more. There's evidence that chronic, persistent stress may actually rewire your brain, says a piece in the Harvard Health blog. Scientists have learned that animals that experience prolonged stress have less activity in the parts of their brain that handle higher-order tasks. For example, the prefrontal cortex and more activity in the primitive parts of their brain that are focused on survival, such as the amygdala. It's much like what would happen if you exercised one part of your body and not another. The part that was activated more often would become stronger, and the part that got less attention would get weaker. This is what appears to happen in the brain when it is under continuous stress. It essentially builds up the part of the brain designed to handle threats, and the part of the brain tasked with more complex thought takes a backseat. With such clear evidence that stress can be debilitating to your brain, finding ways to reduce or avoid stress becomes critical. 
I'm going to offer a number of suggestions in this area over the course of this book. Quick start. What is your favorite thing to do to cope with stress? When was the last time you did it? Number 10. Sleep. If you want better focus, you need to get good sleep. If you want to be a clearer thinker, you need to get good sleep. If you want to make better decisions or have a better memory, you need to get good sleep. According to the National Institutes of Health, quality sleep and getting enough of it at the right times is as essential to survival as food and water. Without sleep, you can't form or maintain the pathways in your brain that let you learn and create new memories, and it's harder to concentrate and respond quickly. Sleep is important to a number of brain functions, including how nerve cells, neurons, communicate with each other. In fact, your brain and body stay remarkably active while you sleep. Recent findings suggest that sleep plays a housekeeping role that removes toxins in your brain that build up while you are awake. The takeaway? Getting enough sleep and getting enough quality sleep is essential if you're going to make the most of your brain. Sleep is not a choice. I know there are lots of people out there who say they don't need a lot of sleep or that they don't have time for sleep or even consider it a point of pride that their lives are so full of activity that they have no choice but to sacrifice sleep. That's a mistake. And if you're one of these people, it's something I want you to reconsider right now. Sleep is crucial to overall health and daily functioning, writes Dr. Jean Kim, a psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at George Washington University. Increasing evidence has tied lack of sleep to a host of mental and physical disorders, including increased depression, irritability, impulsivity, cardiovascular disease, and more. One study noted that sleep actually functions as a sort of laundry cycle for the brain, where during sleep, blood vessels and lymphatic channels in the brain hyperperfuse and flush out metabolic buildup from the day and remove neurotoxins and distribute components that enhance cellular repair. In his TED Talk about sleep, Dr. Jeff Illiff of Oregon Health and Science University takes the laundry cycle metaphor even further. He notes that while we're awake, the brain is so busy doing other things, it doesn't have the capacity to clean itself of waste. The buildup of this waste, amyloid beta, is now being linked to the development of Alzheimer's disease. When the brain is awake, and is at its most busy, it puts off clearing away the waste from the spaces between its cells until later. And then, 
when it goes to sleep and doesn't have to be as busy, it shifts into a kind of cleaning mode to clear away the waste from the spaces between its cells, the waste that's accumulated throughout the day. A little later in the talk, Ilif warns against doing something that so many of us do, sacrificing sleep until we get a chance to catch up. Like housework, it's a dirty and thankless job, but it's also important. In your house, if you stop cleaning your kitchen for a month, your home will become completely unlivable very quickly. But in the brain, the consequences of falling behind may be much greater than the embarrassment of dirty countertops. Because when it comes to cleaning the brain, it is the very health and function of the mind and the body that's at stake. Which is why understanding these very basic housekeeping functions of the brain today may be critical for preventing and treating diseases of the mind tomorrow. So, if you're one of the many people who have convinced themselves that there's a level of nobility in getting by with minimal sleep, it's time to revise your thinking. There's simply too much to gain from a good night's sleep, including what you can learn from your dreams. I'll teach you how to remember your dreams in an upcoming chapter. Getting through the night. It's one thing to say you're going to get a good night's sleep. It's another thing entirely to accomplish it. About a quarter of all Americans experience some level of insomnia every year. There is, however, very strong evidence connecting exercise to sleep, even among chronic insomnia sufferers. A study performed by Dr. Catherine J. Reed and others found that aerobic exercise had strong positive results on a group of participants who'd previously regularly encountered sleep problems. Results from this study indicate that a 16-week program of moderate-intensity aerobic physical activity plus hygiene education is effective in improving self-reported sleep quality, mood, and quality of life in older adults with chronic insomnia, the authors wrote. These results highlight the potential of structured physical activity programs to improve the effectiveness of standard behavioral approaches for the treatment of insomnia, particularly in a sedentary, older, adult population. A group at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine built upon this study by drilling down on the data gleaned and then studying the interconnection between exercise and sleep. What they found is important to consider. Exercise is not a magic pill. If you're having trouble sleeping, you can't solve the problem with one session at the gym. They found that even after two months, the effects of exercise on sleep were minimal, but by the end of the 16-week study, the results were considerable, with participants getting as much as an hour and a quarter extra sleep per night. So, there's a clear connection between exercise and sleep. 
but we're going to need to give it time. But given the overall benefits of exercise on your health, committing to an exercise routine is always a good idea, even if you won't feel the benefits on your sleep right away. There are varying ideas about how much exercise is necessary to affect sleep, but a commonly stated amount is two and a half hours a week of aerobic exercise, coupled with some resistance work. Brisk walking, light biking, elliptical machine, anything that increases your heart rate so that you can still talk while exercising but have to catch your breath every few sentences or so is considered moderate exercise. Recommends Dr. Christopher E. Klein of the University of Pittsburgh. Giving your mind a break. One of the many reasons why people have trouble sleeping is not being able to get your mind to turn off. We've all been there. You have a huge meeting coming up or something disruptive, either positive or negative, happening during the day. Or you got a phone call just before bedtime that got you riled up. Your head hits the pillow, but you might as well be running laps around your house because your mind is busy with this inciting event. You wind up lying there for hours and sleep seems as unapproachable as Everest. Fortunately, you have a tool available to you at all times that could help you deal with this. Meditation. The benefits of meditation are numerous, and there are many, many books out there that detail them, including everything from boosting immune function to decreasing anxiety to actually increasing your gray matter. One of those many benefits is helping with insomnia. In a study performed by Dr. David S. Black and others, a group of older adults with sleep problems were introduced to mindfulness meditation through six two-hour sessions. By the end of these sessions, this group showed meaningful improvement with insomnia. If meditation seems foreign to you, and if that's the case, you're in the vast majority as less than 15% of Americans meditate, it's likely because you've heard that meditation is difficult or that it requires you to completely blank your mind. Ariel Garten, creator of Muse, a headband that assists in meditation, clarifies that this isn't about emptying your mind, but rather training your mind to be aware in the present moment. She told me that you can choose any time and any place to meditate and that you can feel the benefits from it with as little as three minutes spent with eyes closed, taking deep breaths, and then releasing those breaths, counting as you go. Another tool she advocates is focused attention, a super simple process of placing all your attention on your breathing. When your mind wanders from your breathing, as it invariably will, just notice this and bring it back. This technique promises to demystify meditation for anyone who thinks you need to be a Zen master to get anything out of it. Few people are capable of locking our focus on one thing for an extended period, 
So it's good to know refocusing is equally valuable. When you regain your attention on your breathing, Garten says you're exerting an important skill. You're learning to observe your thinking. You're not caught up in your thoughts, but you're in a process of observing that you're thinking. You begin to recognize that you can have control over your thoughts and that you can choose what you are thinking. My meditation coach, Emily Fletcher, author of Stress Less, Accomplish More, has a very unique process for meditation called Ziva. You can watch a full video of us going through her process at limitlessbook.com forward slash resources. Quick start. What is your top sleep tip? Write it in your notepad now. Before we move on, fueling your brain is fundamental to becoming limitless, and we have lots more to get to in order to make this happen. But first, let's stop and focus on a few things from this chapter. Put a shopping list together for all the brain foods you don't currently have in your home. I realize that not all of these foods are going to be compatible with your palate, but really try to include as many as you can. Then, take this list with you to the store. Even better, watch the video in your resources on how to memorize your list. Spend time identifying your ants automatic negative thoughts. What limitations are you placing on yourself? Give yourself a few minutes with this. What are you telling yourself you can't do? Write this down. Think about how you'd like to expand your learning. What have you always wanted to master that you haven't found the time to master? Is it a different language, computer coding, a new sales or marketing technique. What can you do to fit that into your life right now? And finally, if you want to go deeper in these 10 areas, here are a few suggestions of some of my favorite podcast episodes you will find linked in the resource section. A Good Brain Diet. Listen to my conversations with Naveen Jain about the gut biome, Dr. Lisa Moscone, author of Brain Food, Max Lugavir, author of Genius Food, Dr. Mark Hyman, a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, and Liana Werner Gray. Listen to our conversation about food and cancer. For brain nutrients, I recommend the episodes with Max Lugavir, Dr. Lisa Moscone, Dr. Mark Hyman, and Dave Asprey. For exercise, refer to my conversations with Sean Stevenson and Aaron Alexander. If you want help killing ants, Listen to my episodes with Dr. Daniel Amen and Nick Ortner, 
author of the New York Times bestselling book, Tapping Solution. If you want some advanced tips on how to clean your environment, listen to my interview with Ben Greenfield and Julia Roy. For a positive peer group, listen to my interviews with Simon Sinek, Dr. Guy Winch, and Brendan Burchard. For brain protection, listen to Dr. Joe Mercola and Ben Greenfield. If you want to boost new learnings, listen to my episodes with Danica McKellar and Dr. B.J. Fogg. Stress management, my interviews with Emily Fletcher, Jay Shetty, and Nick Ortner. And then finally, to optimize your sleep, I highly recommend you listen to my conversations with Dr. Michael Bruce, Dr. Greg Wells, Sean Stevenson, Dr. Jay Corsandi, and Dave Asprey. You can listen to all these episodes on the podcast link in the resource section of the book. Energy. Wow, it's something we, again, we don't often think about when it comes to motivation. We just assume like it's something that we have, right? So energy and cultivating energy, this is powerful. Something that really stuck out to me uh, through through all of those really helpful frames and suggestions was what you talked about when it comes to people. Mm-hmm. I know for a lot of people who are listening to this book, starting to do the work of it, you know, changes happen really quickly, powerful changes. And sometimes you know, one of the biggest things that can hold us back or, or make us afraid of changing more is that we start getting you know, feedback from other people. And some of it's right. positive. I'm sure, sure. You know, you'll have friends who are like, wow, it's so exciting. But the truth is, like, sometimes we're in old pa- like behavior patterns mm-hmm. with family and friends, and our rapid transformation terrifies them. Yeah. And they might criticize us or, or make fun of us even, start mocking the work that we're doing. What advice do you have for people about navigating, you know, the changing mm-hmm. social dynamics that, that occur yeah. when you start to evolve? Yeah, when we talked about the 10 keys for, for unlocking more brain energy, one of them was a positive peer group, for sure, and the people around us. They can either encourage us and support us and, and challenge us and educate us and lift us up. And there's some people that are more more vampires. I, I say so. some people are batteries included. Some people are batteries not included. And they take your batteries and they take your energy and your dreams. But sometimes it, it's true. I believe that sometimes the people who care about us the most are the ones that we give them the power to hold us back. And now notice I'm saying they're not holding us back, but we give them the power to hold us back. As you mentioned, family and friends, they could be well-intentioned. They could be like, oh, um, you know, I don't want you to get your hopes up, right? It could sound, it could sound very benign. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to get your hopes up. I don't want you to get hurt. And some of them have a deep fear that they don't, they see you progressing. You're like, why are you going to another conference? Or, or why are you listening to another podcast or reading all those books? You know, why don't you just relax? And um, they want to bring you to their set point on their thermostat. And it takes a, a level of willpower, a level of, of self-esteem, and a level of also boundaries. Sometimes self-care and self-love is just realizing that if you say yes to somebody, you're not saying no to yourself. 
and uh, put boundaries on those things that are important. And you got to stand guard to the doors of your mind. And in your and your friends and your family could be sincere, but they could also be sincerely wrong. And that's a big challenge. And so I'm not saying love your family, love, love, love your friends, of, of course. But when I'm saying a positive peer group that energizes you, you could decide who your peer group is, the people that have influence on how you see the world, on how you feel about yourself. And I think we all need somebody to encourage us, to challenge us, to cheerlead for us. And if you haven't found that person, then be that person for somebody else. And certainly be that person for you. So we don't have to cut everybody out who, you know, who's not quite on board with us. We can hold that in compassion while also finding, you know, maybe people who can support us. What about then the flip side, which also happens, is that we start doing this. We start eating clean. We start mm -hmm. you know, restocking our pantries. Uh -huh. we've, we've cleaned our space. We're like really boosting our energy and we're feeling such benefits that, of course, what do we want to do? We want to get everyone around yeah. us to of do course, this. Of course, We're like, you've got to do this. Thing. We become like, you know. like We're evangelists. Like, totally. And in my experience, this again, well-intentioned, we want the people around us who we love to mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. the benefit. Often it backfires. So if you, yes. if someone who's listening right now is so excited and just wants to give this benefit to their family and friends, what's the best way to actually go about uplifting everyone around us? Yeah. I would imagine when when I first learned these skills back when I was 18 years old, I became that evangelist. I was so upset that this stuff wasn't taught back in school. And I started talking to everyone I, who would listen about this and wanting to help them to be able to change. But it's near impossible to change somebody else. And and this is what I mean by that. People have to want to be able to change on their, on their own uh, accord. Because just think about how hard it is to change ourselves much less try to change somebody else. And what I would recommend is that people are watching you. They, they purely are watching. And it's not, don't say it, show it. Don't promise it, prove it. It's, it's much better well done than it is well said. And the life that we live are the lessons we really teach other people. Because people watching and you're telling them, oh, I'm going to do this celery juice every morning, I want to meditate 20 minutes a day and everything, they're watching you. And that could go back to the power of the discussion we were talking about before of motivation. Maybe what's keeping you on track and motivated is you know people are watching. You know, and you inspire people, even when you're going through difficult times, you don't have to be perfect, but you inspire people with your, with your grit and your grace. And people more likely are going to do what you do rather than what you say. And they're like, they're thinking, and they're watching from the distance. And they're like, is this person, is he, are they serious this time? Are they really going to be able to follow through? And then your results will speak for themselves, for sure. And then they have to go on their own time because when the teacher, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will, will, will appear. But my, my suggestion is don't try to change them, you know, be a living, inspiring example for them because nobody wants to be preached to. Or if you do want to introduce it, do it in a way that's not like overwhelming. You don't want to listen to a, you know, hours and hours of an audio book and then just like, oh my God, let me tell you everything I did. Like, da, da, We're da, da, only da, da. eating avocados exactly. from now on. That's it. <laughs> but you could do something fun in a small, simple step, which is a great segue to the next conversation. Maybe you take your spouse or your child or your teammate or your boss and you introduce one little thing 
And then one little thing leads to another little thing and another little thing. Not something overwhelming like, okay, we're, we're just going to eat organic food and we're just, we're all, the whole family's going to eat an hour a day because I listened to it on, that would be, that's a too big of a step. So we meet inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's way too hard. Well, let's learn a little bit more about that, this next vital part of the puzzle, taking it step by step. Chapter 9. Small, Simple Steps What is the smallest, simple step I can take now? How do we start good habits or end bad ones? What daily routine will help me become limitless? You have a reason or a purpose to do something. You have the necessary energy to do it. What is missing? A small, simple step. S3. The tiniest action you can take to get closer to your goal. One that requires minimal effort or energy. Over time, these become habits. That's the reason I've filled this book with the small, simple steps called quick starts. Back in the 1920s, a Russian psychologist, Bluma Zygarnik, was sitting in a Viennese restaurant when she noticed that the waiters swirling around her in the busy eatery were highly efficient at remembering customer orders while they were in the process, but tended to forget who had what as soon as the orders were filled. Intrigued by this, she ran a study where she had people perform simple tasks while they were sometimes interrupted. Afterward, she queried participants about which task they remembered and which they did not, finding that those who had been interrupted were twice as likely to remember the things they'd been doing when they'd been interrupted than the things they'd been able to complete without interruption. She came to the conclusion, subsequently known as the Zygarnik effect, that uncompleted tasks created a level of tension that keeps that task at the front of our minds until it is completed. In all likelihood, you're familiar with this tension from your experience with procrastination. When you have something you know you need to do and you keep putting it off, it weighs on you, even making it more difficult to do anything else well as long as this task goes uncompleted. What you need to do seems hard or it seems less fun than the other things you could be doing or it's going to be uncomfortable or you've simply convinced yourself that you have plenty of time to get to it later. We still struggle to complete tasks when we are clear on our vision for our lives and know who we want to become. Why is it so hard to act even when we have sustained motivation? One of the most significant reasons that people fail to act is that we feel overwhelmed by what we need to do. A project or chore might seem so big and time-consuming that you can't imagine how you're ever going to get it done. We look at the project in its entirety, 
and immediately feel that the task at hand is too big, so we shut down or put it off. Incomplete tasks and procrastinating often lead to frequent and unhelpful thought patterns, says psychologist Hadassah Lipschitz. These thoughts can impact on sleep, trigger anxiety symptoms, and further impact on a person's mental and emotional resources. Be kind to yourself. If you struggle to get something done with some amount of regularity, there's a good chance you feel guilty about this and you beat yourself up over it. It's likely you give yourself a much harder time about it than is helpful. We already know that unfinished tasks create tension in your brain. If you layer guilt and shame on top of this, you're making it even harder to get a task done and you're making yourself miserable. Feeling guilty when you're away from work, when you aren't in a position to do anything about it, is not helpful and can be painful, writes Dr. Art Markman, a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas, Austin. It will make you feel worse about your job in general and spoil time that you could be spending with friends family, or engaging in an enjoyable activity. Shame, though, is a different story. There is evidence that people will explicitly procrastinate to avoid shame. Feeling shame about work you have not completed is likely to make the problem worse, not better, making it an emotion that is almost never helpful. Feeling bad about your lack of progress is likely to make it more difficult for you to stop procrastinating. So give yourself a break. Beating yourself up isn't going to improve anything. And since you're listening and reading this book now, you're already taking steps to avoid procrastinating in the future. In my experience, the best way to deal with this is to find a way to break the task into bite-sized pieces which lead to habits that lead towards success. Circling back to the Zygarnik effect, every time you complete one of these smaller tasks, you get to take the weight off your mind. And as each of these subtasks is finished, you're that much closer to completing the task overall. Take baby steps. Podcast guest Dr. B.J. Fogg the founder and director of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University and the author of Tiny Habits, has been studying human behavior for more than two decades. What he's learned is that only three things can change a person's behavior long-term. One is to have an epiphany, which very few people can summon on demand. Another is to change your environment, which is possible for nearly everyone but not necessarily feasible at any given time. The third is to, as Dr. Fogg puts it, take baby steps. I like the way this story illustrates the principle of small, simple steps. A king was watching a great magician perform his act. The crowd was enthralled, and so was the king. At the end, the audience roared with approval, and the king said, what a gift this man has, a God-given talent. But a wise counselor said to the king, My lord, genius is made, not born. 
This magician's skill is the result of discipline and practice. These talents have been learned and honed over time with determination and discipline. The king was troubled by this message. The counselor's challenge had spoiled his pleasure in the magician's arts. Limited and spiteful man, how dare you criticize a true genius? As I said, you either have it or you don't, and you most certainly don't. The king turned to his bodyguard and said, Throw this man into the deepest dungeon. And he added, for the counselor's benefit, So you won't be lonely. You could have two of your kind to keep you company. You shall have two piglets as cellmates. From the very first day of his imprisonment, the wise counselor practiced running up the steps of his cell to the prison door, carrying in each hand a piglet. As the days turn into weeks and the weeks into months, the piglet steadily grew into sturdy boars. And with every day of practice, the wise counselor increased his power and strength. One day, the king remembered the wise counselor and was curious to see how imprisonment had humbled him. He had the wise counselor summoned. When the prisoner appeared, he was now a man of powerful physique, carrying a boar on each arm. The king exclaimed, What a gift this man has, a God-given talent. The wise counselor replied, My lord, genius is made, not born. My skill is the result of discipline and practice. These talents have been learned and honed over time with determination and discipline.